The Toys of Peace and Other Papers by Saki. Read by Richard Crowest. Forewarned. Alethea Debchance sat in a corner of an otherwise empty railway carriage, more or less at ease as regarded body, but in some trepidation as to mind. She had embarked on a social adventure of no little magnitude as compared with the accustomed seclusion and stagnation of her past life. At the age of twenty-eight she could look back on nothing more eventful than the daily round of her existence in her aunt's house at Webble Hinton, a hamlet four and a half miles distant from a country town and about a quarter of a century removed from modern times. Their neighbours had been elderly and few, not much given to social intercourse, but helpful or politely sympathetic in times of illness. Newspapers of the ordinary kind were a rarity. Those that Alethea saw regularly were devoted exclusively either to religion or to poultry, and the world of politics was to her an unheeded, unexplored region. Her ideas on life in general had been acquired through the medium of popular, respectable novel-writers and modified or emphasised by such knowledge as her aunt, the vicar, and her aunt's housekeeper had put at her disposal. And now, in her twenty-ninth year, her aunt's death had left her well provided for as regards income, but somewhat isolated in the matter of kith and kin and human companionship. She had some cousins who were on terms of friendly though infrequent correspondence with her, but as they lived permanently in Ceylon, a locality about which she knew little, beyond the assurance contained in the missionary hymn that the human element there was vile, they were not of much immediate use to her. Other cousins she also possessed, more distant as regards relationship, but not quite so geographically remote, seeing that they lived somewhere in the Midlands. She could hardly remember ever having met them, but once or twice in the course of the last three or four years they had expressed a polite wish that she should pay them a visit. They had probably not been unduly depressed by the fact that her aunt's failing health had prevented her from accepting their invitation. The note of condolence that had arrived on the occasion of her aunt's death had included a vague hope that Alethea would find time in the near future to spend a few days with her cousins and after much deliberation and many hesitations she had written to propose herself as a guest for a definite date some weeks ahead the family she reflected with relief was not a large one the two daughters were married and away there was only old mrs bloodwood and her son robert at home mrs bloodwood was something of an invalid and robert was a young man who had been at oxford and was going into parliament Further than that, Alethea's information did not go. Her imagination, founded on her extensive knowledge of the people one met in novels, had to supply the gaps. The mother was not difficult to place. She would either be an ultra-amiable old lady, bearing her feeble health with uncomplaining fortitude and having a kind word for the gardener's boy and a sunny smile for the chance visitor, or else she would be cold and peevish, with eyes that pierced you like a gimlet, and an unreasoning idolatry of her son. Alethea's imagination rather inclined her to the latter view. Robert was more of a problem— there were three dominant types of manhood to be taken into consideration in working out his classification. There was Hugo, who was strong, good, and beautiful, a rare type and not very often met with. 
there was Sir Jasper, who was utterly vile and absolutely unscrupulous, and there was Neville, who was not really bad at heart, but had a weak mouth and usually required the life-work of two good women to keep him from ultimate disaster. It was probable, Alethea considered, that Robert came into the last category, in which case she was certain to enjoy the companionship of one or two excellent women, and might possibly catch glimpses of undesirable adventuresses, or come face to face with reckless admiration-seeking married women. It was altogether an exciting prospect, this sudden venture into an unexplored world of unknown human beings, and Alethea rather wished that she could have taken the vicar with her, she was not, however, rich or important enough to travel with a chaplain, as the Marquis of Moistonclue always did in the novel she had just been reading, so she recognised that such a proceeding was out of the question. The train which carried Alethea towards her destination was a local one, with the wayside station habit strongly developed. At most of the stations no one seemed to want to get into the train or to leave it, but at one there were several market folk on the platform, and two men of the farmer or small cattle dealer class entered Alethea's carriage. Apparently they had just foregathered after a day's business, and their conversation consisted of a rapid exchange of short, friendly inquiries as to health, family, stock, and so forth, and some grumbling remarks on the weather. Suddenly, however, their talk took a dramatically interesting turn, and Alethea listened with wide-eyed attention. "'What do you think of Mr. Robert Bloodwood, eh?' There was a certain scornful ring in his question. "'Robert Bloodwood, an out-and-out -out rotter, that's what he is. Ought to be ashamed to look any decent man in the face. Send him to Parliament to represent us, not much. He'd rob a poor man of his last shilling, he would.' "'Ah, that he would.' "'Tell a pack of lies to get our votes, that's all that he's after, damn him. "'Did you see the way the Argus showed him up this week? "'Properly exposed him, hip and thigh, I tell you.' "'And so on they ran in their withering indictment. "'There could be no doubt that it was Alethea's cousin and prospective host to whom they were referring. "'The allusion to a parliamentary candidature settled that. "'What could Robert Bloodwood have done?' What manner of man could he be that people should speak of him with such obvious reprobation? "'He was hissed down at Shulford yesterday,' said one of the speakers. "'Hissed? Had it come to that? There was something dramatically biblical in the idea of Robert Bloodwood's neighbours and acquaintances hissing him for very scorn. Lord Herrowood's strang laugh had been hissed, now Alethea came to think of it, in the eighth chapter of Matterby Towers, while in the act of opening a Wesleyan bazaar, because he was suspected, unjustly, it turned out afterwards, of having beaten the German governess to death. And in tainted guineas, Roper Squenderby had been deservedly hissed on the steps of the jockey club for having handed a rival owner a forged telegram containing false news of his mother's death just before the start for an important race, thereby ensuring the withdrawal of his rival's horse. In placid Saxon-blooded England, people did not demonstrate their feelings lightly and without some strong, compelling cause. What manner of evildoer was Robert Bloodwood? The train stopped at another small station, and the two men got out. One of them left behind him a copy of the Argus, the local paper to which he had made reference. Alethea pounced on it, in the expectation of finding a cultured literary endorsement of the censure which these rough farming men had expressed in their homely, honest way. She had not far to look. Mr. Robert Bloodwood, swanker, 
was the title of one of the principal articles in the paper. She did not exactly know what a swanker was. Probably it referred to some unspeakable form of cruelty, but she read enough in the first few sentences of the article to discover that her cousin Robert, the man at whose house she was about to stay, was an unscrupulous, unprincipled character of a low order of intelligence, yet cunning withal, and that he and his associates were responsible for most of the misery, disease, poverty and ignorance with which the country was afflicted. Never, except in one or two of the denunciatory psalms, which she had always supposed to have been written in a spirit of exaggerated oriental imagery, had she read such an indictment of a human being. And this monster was going to meet her at Derrelton Station in a few short minutes. She would know him at once. He would have the dark, beetling brows, the quick, furtive glance, the sneering, unsavoury smile that always characterised the Sir Jaspers of this world. It was too late to escape. She must force herself to meet him with outward calm. It was a considerable shock to her to find that Robert was fair, with a snub nose, merry eye, and rather a schoolboy manner. A serpent in duckling's plumage was her private comment. Merciful chance had revealed him to her in his true colours. As they drove away from the station, a dissipated-looking man of the labouring class waved his hat in a friendly salute. "'Good luck to you, Mr. Bloodwood,' he shouted. "'You'll come out on top. We'll break old Jobham's neck for him.' "'Who was that man?' asked Alethea quickly. "'Oh, one of my supporters,' laughed Robert. "'A bit of a poacher and a bit of a pub loafer, but he's on the right side.' "'So these were the sort of associates that Robert Bloodwood consorted with.' thought Alethea. "'Who is the person he referred to as Old Chobham?' she asked. "'Sir John Chobham, the man who is opposing me,' answered Robert. "'That is his house there, away among the trees on the right.' So there was an upright man, possibly a very Hugo in character, who was thwarting and defying the evildoer in his nefarious career, and there was a dastardly plot afoot to break his neck.' "'Possibly the attempt would be made within the next few hours. "'He must certainly be warned. "'Alethea remembered how Lady Sylvia Broomgate in Nightshade Court "'had pretended to be bolted with by her horse "'up to the front door of a threatened county magnet "'and had whispered a warning in his ear "'which saved him from being the victim of foul murder. "'She wondered if there was a quiet pony in the stables "'on which she would be allowed to ride out alone. "'The chances are that she would be watched.' Robert would come spurring after her and seize her bridle just as she was turning in at Sir John's gates. A group of men that they passed in a village street gave them no very friendly looks, and Alethea thought she heard a furtive hiss. A moment later they came upon an errand boy riding a bicycle. He had the frank, open countenance, neatly brushed hair and tidy clothes that betoken a clear conscience and a good mother. He stared straight at the occupants of the car, and, after he had passed them, sang in his clear, boyish voice, "'We'll hang Bobby Bloodwood on the sour apple tree!' Robert merely laughed. That was how he took the scorn and condemnation of his fellow men. He had goaded them to desperation with his shameless depravity till they spoke openly of putting him to a violent death, and he laughed." Mrs. Bloodwood proved to be of the type that Alethea had suspected, thin-lipped, cold-eyed, and obviously devoted to her worthless son. From her no help was to be expected. 
Alethea locked her door that night and placed such ramparts of furniture against it that the maid had great difficulty in breaking in with the early tea in the morning. After breakfast, Alethea, on the pretext of going to look at an outlying rose garden, slipped away to the village through which they had passed on the previous evening. She remembered that Robert had pointed out to her a public reading room, and here she considered it possible that she might meet Sir John Chobham, or someone who knew him well and could carry a message to him. The room was empty when she entered it. A graphic, twelve days old, a yet older copy of Punch, and one or two local papers lay upon the central table. The other tables were stacked for the most part with chess and drafts boards and wooden boxes of chessmen and dominoes. Listlessly she picked up one of the papers, the Sentinel, and glanced at its contents. Suddenly she started and began to read with breathless attention a prominently printed article headed A Little Limelight on Sir John Chobham. The colour ebbed away from her face, a look of frightened despair crept into her eyes. Never in any novel that she had read had a defenceless young woman been confronted with a situation like this. Sir John, the Hugo of her imagination, was, if anything, rather more depraved and despicable than Robert Bloodwood. He was mean, evasive, callously indifferent to his country's interests, a cheat, a man who habitually broke his word and who was responsible, with his associates, for most of the poverty, misery, crime and national degradation with which the country was afflicted. He was also a candidate for Parliament, it seemed, and as there was only one seat in this particular locality, it was obvious that the success of either Robert or Sir John would mean a check to the ambitions of the other. Hence, no doubt, the rivalry and enmity between these otherwise kindred souls. One was seeking to have his enemy done to death, the other was apparently trying to stir up his supporters to an act of lynch law. All this in order that there might be an unopposed election, that one or other of the candidates might go into Parliament with honeyed eloquence on his lips and blood on his heart. Were men really so vile? I must go back to Webble Hinton at once, Alethea informed her astonished hostess at lunchtime. I have had a telegram. A friend is very seriously ill, and I have been sent for. It was dreadful to have to concoct lies but it would be more dreadful to have to spend another night under that roof. Alethea reads novels now with even greater appreciation than before. She has been herself in the world outside Webble Hinton, the world where the great dramas of sin and villainy are played unceasingly. She had come unscathed through it, but what might have happened if she had gone unsuspectingly to visit Sir John Chobham and warn him of his danger? What indeed? She had been saved by the fearless outspokenness of the local press.